Hey everyone, I'm Walt, one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you in worship today. After I graduated college, I lived with a young family. One day, the dad took his two-year-old son out to the park for a bit. And when they came back, he looked a a little frustrated. So I asked him what happened. He said that there was a balloon artist at the park that day, and there was a massive line of kids queuing up to see their dreams come to life in balloon form, and his son wanted to get in on the action. So they got to the end of the line and waited and waited and waited, and my friend asked his son what he wanted. He didn't know. They were seeing kids walk by with lions and dragons and all kinds of other epic creations. So what do you think, buddy? What would you like? No answer. Kid had full-blown analysis paralysis. After about 25 minutes of waiting, they're, they're nearly at the front of the line. The kid is just jittery. No decision has been made. And, and finally, it's the moment of truth. They're standing in front of the balloon master. What can I make for you, he asks. And the kid just stares at him. It's starting to get a little awkward. My friend nudges him. Hey, you need to ask for something, kiddo. And he's shifting and fidgeting. And then after what seems like an eternity, he blurts out his response. A worm. I want you to think for a second about what it takes to make a worm out of a balloon. It's, it's literally nothing. It's just blowing the air into the tube balloon. And, and so the master blinks a, a worm. Are you sure? <laughs> yeah, exclaimed the kid. So he, he blows a balloon, whoosh, ties a knot, hands it to the kid, and away they go. And, and my friend is wondering, what in the world has just happened, right? He, he could have had anything, but all he asked for was a worm. We're continuing in our sermon series, Kingdom Life. Over the past two months, both in our sermons and in our daily devotionals, we've been engaging with the Gospel of Luke verse by verse in order to both understand and experience the new kind of kingdom that Jesus is bringing about. It's a kingdom that is bringing about hope instead of despair, healing instead of sickness, reconciliation instead of division, generosity instead of hoarding, and so much more. And at the center of it all is the king, Jesus. Jesus has been embarking on a journey to reveal the power and the promises of this kingdom, good news of great joy for all people. It's shown up through his teachings, through his miraculous healings, and through his very life as he shows everyone he comes into contact with exactly what God is like. A good king who has come to reverse the kingdoms of this world and replace them with something new and lasting. For many of us, we love these stories. They're they're stories that we come back to time and again for encouragement and insight. And yet, when I try to think honestly about my own spiritual life, And as I chat with other high rockers about their own, we've observed some discrepancies between what's happening in Luke and and what's happening in our own lives. It shows up in a variety of ways. But one way that I've been thinking a lot about lately has been our prayer life. Here's what I mean by that. There's a notable difference between the kind of work that Jesus is doing in the Bible and, and the kind of work that I often ask Jesus to do in my life. In the stories we see scripture, uh, scripture we see Jesus healing and, and brings sight to the blind. He multiplies food. He even raises people from the dead. Jesus is doing amazing, life-altering things. And while Jesus certainly has done amazing, life-altering things in my own life, I find myself asking, do I want more of that? Or ultimately, when I'm face-to-face with Jesus in prayer, am I just asking for a worm? Later in Luke, Jesus says, just like the balloon master, ask and it will be given to you. Jesus has that kind of authority. He is the king. But when was the last time we took him up on that? 
When was the last time you prayed a big prayer? When was the last time you prayed for Jesus' kingdom to come the way that it was coming in Luke, with power and clarity in ways that were often beyond what people dared even to hope? Maybe you were praying these kinds of prayers uh, on the way to church today, and it's just a regular part of your relationship with God, and if so that's awesome. Just hang in there for a bit. I'll come back to you. But I do wonder if, for, for many, maybe even most of us, if our prayer life can feel a little wormy. It's not that we aren't praying. It's just that our, our prayers are, are small and safe. The stakes are low. We pray for, for blessing and for peace and for guidance in very general and, and predictable ways. And to be fair, there's nothing wrong with that. Just like there's nothing wrong with worms. But it makes me ask, why is that? What keeps us from asking for more, hoping for more? We might pray low-stakes prayers, but we definitely don't have low-stakes lives. There are big things happening in and around us. Shouldn't we be praying big prayers to match? I can think of a couple reasons why this would be the case. For some of us, there may have been times in our lives, especially when faith was newer and when we were younger, where we prayed big prayers. We experienced Jesus in compelling, transformative ways, and those experiences shaped who we are. There were real needs that we asked Jesus to meet, and he did. But maybe now we don't have a lot of needs. We're pretty comfortable. And when needs do arise, we probably know how to deal with them. We can fix them on their own. We don't feel like we, we need Jesus in big ways, and, and so we don't pray big prayers. Because things have stabilized. We're kind of in the status quo. And so we don't pray those kind of prayers because there aren't any big fires that need putting out. Life's okay. Besides, praying for big things might kind of cause a, a disruption that, that we don't really want in the first place. For the others of us, we, we know we have big needs. But it can feel hard to hope that prayer will actually make a difference. There are, are fires raging around us. We need help. But letting God into those places feels risky vulnerable. Because what if God doesn't show up? What if our prayers aren't answered in the ways that we want them to be? So we protect the painful parts of our lives because we don't want them to become worse. One time my dog's toenail got caught in something and was pulled most of the way off. He was bleeding all over the place and, and I wanted to help him out, but he didn't want me anywhere near it. And I think the same can be true of our spiritual lives. It can be hard to entrust a, a place of pain to God. Whether we're in a season of stability or struggle, I think what's happening is that we are tempted to control our circumstances. We want to avoid disruption and disappointment, and so we don't dream for more than what we have. We don't imagine how the kingdom could truly look in our lives, so we often settle for simple, safe prayers. That's something that resonates with you at all. One of the concepts that frequently comes up here at High Rock is, is this idea of compartmentalized lives, right? The, the tendency to open up parts of our lives to God, but to keep other parts tucked away or, or off limits. This could be for tangible things like our, our saving habits or our sexuality or, or how much time we spend serving others, but it can also be for more abstract things like our emotions or, or past hurts or even our spiritual lives. What we've been discovering in Luke is that the authority of Jesus the king of this new kingdom is going to mess with all those things. And that's actually good news. Because Jesus is not like these other kings who are only concerned with amassing power. Jesus uses his authority, his power to, to give. 
to give life and hope and healing, even and perhaps especially to those places where we are reluctant to relinquish control. The idea of Jesus' authority will probably feel familiar to, to many of us, especially those who have been in, in the church for a while. But the question we need to continue to come back to is, do we live like we know this is true? Because there is a difference between viewing this as a right answer and experience it as a way to live in this new kingdom. In the verses right before Jesus, uh, today's scripture reading, Jesus offers this reflection. He says that those who hear his words and put them into practice are like wise builders who build their house on solid ground. But those who hear his words and don't put them into practice are foolish, like those who build on the sand. Luke then uses his teaching as a jumping off point for a story that illustrates this. A story about a very unlikely man who puts Jesus' words into practice. A Roman centurion. As a quick recap, Judea was under the oppression of Roman rule. They were Gentile invaders who frequently antagonized the Jewish people under them. Many Jews hoped that God would one day send a Messiah to be a political and military leader who would deliver them out from under Rome's thumb. God's kingdom would be victorious over them. It was certainly not for them. But as God's kingdom began breaking in, first through John and then through Jesus, some of these Romans began to take notice. And as they saw more of who Jesus was and what he was doing, they began to lean in, which is exactly what the centurion does. The centurion had a servant who had fallen gravely ill. And so when he heard that Jesus had come to his town, Capernaum, he knew that Jesus had the power, the authority to heal his servant. And we've heard stories like this before. Luke has given us examples like the leper and the paralyzed man who came or were brought to Jesus so that they might be healed. Very standard. But this story takes an interesting turn. Here, the centurion sends someone on his account, not just anyone, but Jewish elders, which is not the norm. That's not like how oppressed oppressor relationships typically look. But we get some insight into the character of this man. The Jewish elders come to Jesus and, and plead with him. This man deserves to have you heal his servant because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. This is complicated, right? On one hand, this guy is an officer in the Roman army, not known for wielding power and authority in, in healthy ways. But on the other hand, we see how he has used his authority for good. He cares about the Jewish people. He's built them a synagogue, which served as a house of worship, as well as a school, community center. And in this instance, he's cashing in his goodwill, not for himself, but, but for the sake of his servant, someone who is obviously in a much lower station than he is. He's a man with authority who is at least driven to do some good with it. So Jesus says yes. And he heads out to his home to heal the servant. The, again, Jesus is just low-key defying all the social norms by being willing to go into the home of a Gentile. We saw him do this with Levi, the corrupt tax collector, and now he's doing the same here. But we don't even get a dramatic scene in the home of the centurion because the centurion basically says, let me stop you right there. I don't need you to even come to my house. He says, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I do not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man with authority. And, I, and with soldiers under me, I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. This is, is wild. The, a few things strike me about this part. First, 
the humility of the centurion. He understands who he is in relation to Jesus. Unlike the religious leaders who are often seen uh, trying to one-up Jesus, the centurion sees things about his life that are problematic. His faults, his failures, his flaws. And he's keenly aware that despite all of the power he wields, he's powerless to heal his servant, whom he loves. Pastor Dave reminded us the other week, Jesus came to call the sick and the sinners, not the healthy or righteous. This man knows he is unrighteous. He doesn't even believe that he was worthy enough for Jesus to enter his home. Many of us might trace our hesitancy around prayer to similar feelings of unworthiness or shame. We know who we are, what we've done, what we're like. Why would God listen to us? Why should we ask God to do something amazing, miraculous even? We're all too familiar with our own faults and failures and flaws. But one of the things I love about this story is that the centurion doesn't stop with that acknowledgement. It's only half the picture. Yes, he believes that he is unworthy for Jesus to enter his home, but bonded with his humility is also this remarkable boldness, this incredible belief in what Jesus can do. And so the centurion makes this incredible request, heal my servant, because he understands how authority works and he understands that Jesus has great authority. He says to Jesus, I know how this works. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell that one, come, and he comes. The centurion sees that just as he has authority over the military forces under him, Jesus has authority over forces as well. In this case, physical forces of sickness and health. But we've seen elsewhere how this authority extends to spiritual forces, natural forces, and beyond. It's the authority of a king over his kingdom. So the centurion simply says to Jesus, Say the word, and my servant will be healed. And he is. Now, I know that many of us are comfortable when it comes to notions or, or miracles of healings. Uh, let me go back to that verse. I was rolling there. Cripes. Yeah, right there. So the centurion simply says to Jesus, Say the word, and my servant will be healed. And he is. Jesus acts in power and heals him. Now, I know that many of us are, are comfortable when it comes to notions of miracles and healings, but for others of us, these stories can pose a, a problem. It might seem too fantastical, too far-fetched to be credible. Perhaps it's keeping us from giving more of ourselves to this story to Jesus. And I understand why that might be the case. How can we believe a story that contains these obvious exceptions to reality? I, I appreciate what Justo Gonzalez has to say about miracles in the Bible. He says, a miracle is not an interruption of an order, but rather the eruption of the true order, the order of the creator God into the demonic disorder of this present world. It is a sign of God's victory over the powers of evil. It is an announcement that the new order is at hand, that ultimately power belongs to the God of creation, of true order, freedom, and justice. I love that. And I think that if at the end of the day, we believe Jesus makes a small difference in our world, we'll end up praying small prayers. But if we believe that Jesus is fundamentally changing the world as we know it, bringing in victory over sickness and death and injustice and evil, then our prayers will rise to that level. Believing that Jesus makes a big difference will result in big prayers. 
which is why the story of the centurion to be so shocking for us. It was certainly shocking for Jesus because here is a man who was a Gentile, who occupied a very problematic position in Judea, who had never met Jesus at any point. And, and yet he sees Jesus in a way that others did not. He understands what Jesus is capable of and he asks, asks him to act accordingly. No one had ever done this before. And Luke tells us that Jesus was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, Jesus says, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. The, the faith of the centurion stands as a mirror to the people following Jesus, who are on much better footing given their religious and cultural history and, and their proximity to Jesus. Even though they might have had some of the right ideas, they didn't get the full picture. They weren't living in the reality of Jesus' kingdom the way that this man was. Perhaps their view of the kingdom was too small, really extended to certain parts of their lives. But either way, it was this man's faith that became an example for them, not the other way around. And his faith stands as a mirror to us as well. What does his faith tell us about our own? Do we have a faith like his, humble and bold? A faith that understands the magnitude of Jesus' authority and its power to bring about new life? Or are we settling for something smaller? Christ's authority should solicit both humility and boldness in us. It should lead us to recognize that we are not in control of our lives, that we can't allow Jesus to have access to some parts of us but withhold others. Jesus looks at, at all of us and calls us to bring our whole selves into his kingdom, our bodies, our finances, our relationships, our studies, our fears, our pasts, all of it. But the good news of this kingdom is that when we bring those parts of ourselves into it, when we ask Jesus to be king over all our lives, we bring them under an authority that works to heal and bless. An authority that will interrupt the disorder of our world with freedom and justice and hope. And this should inspire a boldness within us as we pray. Have we put this to, to the test yet? Do we look to the places of need or lack or pain around us and ask Jesus to do more than we could ask or imagine, knowing that he can do it? Earlier this month, uh, our church staff celebrated Sandy Gannon. Sandy recently re retired from our team so she could devote more of her time and energy towards her passion as the director of Kisaboka Uganda, an organization she founded to better the lives of orphans, women, and children in the village of Baka. You might remember learning about their incredible work at the Christmas concert. Some of our staff were sharing what inspired them about Sandy. And one remark that Sandy prays big prayers. The, the needs that Sandy and the Kisaboka team face are seemingly impossible. Incredible poverty, resistance and injustice, sickness, the, the list goes on and on. But Sandy is undeterred because she understands what the authority of Jesus is all about. She prays for Jesus to, to do big things to provide in big ways, to heal in big ways, to save in big ways, and Jesus does. Things that are impossible for us, but for Jesus, all he has to do is say the word. And people like the centurion and Sandy are mirrors to me. They, they make me confront the small, wormy prayers that I often settle for praying. They've made me step back and ask myself, what's going on there? Is there a circumstance in which I am unwilling to let Jesus into? Am I just being lazy and know that if I pray for something big, Jesus will, will move and might disrupt things in ways that I don't want? 
Lately, there have been some things in my family's life that have felt big and scary and daunting. And there have been times where it's actually felt hard to, to pray about those things. You might think it would be easy, but it's, it's tough because my mind has been filled with thoughts like, what if Jesus doesn't come through? What if I'm just a, a fool for asking him to work? I should probably just use this time to, you know, like do things that actually matter to address this, this problem. So in these moments, prayers have felt small. But then I see the centurion. I see Sandy. I see Jesus. And I think I, I want my prayers to be different. I want them to be humble and bold like theirs. The, the apostle James wrote, you do not have because you do not ask God. And honestly, that scripture haunts me a bit. Why am I not asking God to do the kind of things that I know God can do? And so Jan and I have determined that in this season, we're going to try something new. We're going to pray in new ways. And we're going to see what God does. Is asking God to do a big thing a guarantee that it's going to happen? If it doesn't, is it because my, my faith was too small? If I had just you know, believed a bit more, would it have happened? These are really important questions. And I think some of the answers lie in considering not how God responds, but in how we're praying. Because when I think about how Sandy and others like her pray, I'm struck that she brings big problems to Jesus, not big solutions. She doesn't try to control the situation. She isn't telling Jesus what to do, hoping he will obey her instructions. She prays about big problems, but then trusts whatever Jesus does next. And what Jesus does next is not often what she has asked for. It's far beyond her ability to ask or imagine. And perhaps the most compelling parts of the centurion's prayer and Sandy's prayers is that they're not for themselves. They're for others. It's love that compels them to pray, a love for the servant, a love for the people of Baca, a desire that the power of Jesus would show up in awesome and unexpected ways for these friends. They aren't spending all their time caught up in their own needs, though it's certainly good to pray about those things too. They're looking beyond themselves to the needs of the fellow citizens of Christ's kingdom. My encouragement to all of us is to consider praying a big prayer today. Perhaps you've never prayed a prayer like this before. Perhaps you pray them regularly, but honestly, most of them are about your own situation. As I've thought about the kinds of prayers I've been trying to pray lately, it's been clear that a lot of them are for my or my family's benefit. My, my prayer life needs to grow in more ways than just one. And so I've been challenged to look beyond my own needs to the needs of others around me, to, to slow down, to, to become a better listener, and to, to bring these needs to Jesus, believing that he can work. So is there a big prayer that you could pray for the sake of another? I think that's where the real beauty of Christ's kingdom can lie, people praying big prayers for each other with the humble boldness that Jesus can do immeasurably more and then we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. So before that happens, I'd love for you to consider what might be keeping you from praying that kind of prayer. And then together, we'll confess our sins and continue with our worship. Thanks be to God.